Welcome to this Talking Transformation podcast series of the COVID Diaries. This is episode number seven. In this episode, we hear from some familiar voices. We hear again from Kathy Stone. We hear from Professor Francois Virely from the Ereru or Urban Real Estate Unit there at the University of Cape Town. We're also delighted to welcome the voice of Ashraf Adam. Ashraf is presently the CEO at the Mandela Bay Development Agency. You'll hear him refer to it as the MBDA during the course of the conversation. Ashraf is very well known within the public sector and has worked across the global, national, provincial and municipal institutions, including the World Bank, the Municipal Demarcation Board, SALGA, that's the South African Local Government Association, and also the Drakenstein Municipality, where he served as the Executive Manager for the Planning and Economic Development Department for a period of almost three years. We invited Ashraf to join us in this conversation after he published an article in the Port Elizabeth's Herald newspaper titled, Our Chance to Press the Reset Button. And that made for a very interesting reading and we invited him to share the views and what led him to the conclusions that he made in that piece during the course of this episode. He has some very forthright views about local economic development units generally in municipalities. And in the conversation together with Francois, together with Cathy, we look at some of the strengths and weaknesses of our institutions here in South Africa and the impact of an economic downturn on municipal efficiency, efficiency more generally of our institutions, and particularly around revenue collection. All of these issues and themes are considered within the scope of this extended episode. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode and content. Please feel free to comment on the episode via our Twitter platform. You'll find us at Talking Transfo and the number one. In the meantime, enjoy the episode. So it's just gone five o'clock on Wednesday, the 15th of April. And we're talking today to three colleagues across Cape Town. We have Francois Virely, we have Cathy Stone, and we have Ashraf Adam. Colleagues, how are you keeping? Ashraf, let's start with you. How are you today? Thank you very much, Pete. And hello, Cathy. And hello, Francois. Nice to speak to you again. We are fine at the Adam household. Everyone's been okay. It's my wife's birthday. The children have baked the cake, having the cake later on. But we are, I suppose, like most other families, trying to deal with the uncertainty surrounding this matter, uh, both at the personal level and how it affects us as individuals in terms of work and study at university and so forth. So it's uh, the uncertain times are beginning to, to, to hit hard. Indeed. Well, happy birthday to your wife. And hopefully you get some joy out of today as much as the conversation. So thanks again for joining us, Ashraf. Francois, from your side, how are you keeping? All good your side? Family really all in good form and health, I hope. The Verily family is is doing fine. The family is spread across the world, so uh, more communication than ever. Uh, Two daughters in Cape Town in a flat. My wife and I are at home and busy as always trying to alter face-to-face programs at UCT onto online platforms, carrying on with research. And at the same time, I'm, a, I'm also a non-executive director of a real estate investment trust. So we're trying to deal with cash flows and whether tenants will maybe, maybe not be paying rentals. A fairly busy period after all. Fantastic. Well, I, I, I hope all, all going well there. Good to hear you in good form, good spirits, Francois. And some of those challenges that you're talking about, the whole onlining of studying, of education, of the workspace in general, major, major topic that we're dealing with. Cathy, from your side, all good in, in family stone? Everybody well there, that side? Yes, thanks, Pete. It's a, a real pleasure to be able to take some time out from juggling, cleaning, cooking, teaching, working. Uh, to spend some time having a having this conversation, so it's it's wonderful. Thank you, um, and good evening to to Francois and to Ashraf and yourself. Fantastic, colleagues. Well, what brought us here? What, what why these four people around the table? The discussion I wanted to have tonight was to start to unpack the implications in the first place around the extension, the extension of a further fortnight of the lockdown here in South Africa that was announced before the Easter weekend. So we have basically a five-week lockdown period. Francois, you and I have already talked about the implications of the three-week lockdown. And that was where I had thought on the back of the extension, it was worth having a conversation with you again about what does that mean? And when we started to discuss that, you had started to think about already what what does a phased return look like to the economy sort of rebooting itself in the short to medium term? What does that look like? And what sectors could we imagine come back first? 
which of the sort of less vulnerable groups could we put back into the economic space? So that was one part of the conversation. The second was an article that you wrote, Ashraf, in the last couple of days that was published in the Herald across there in Port Elizabeth. And it talked about the reset and what are some of the aspects and issues we should be taking forward when we get back into our workspace and place, when we get back into a normal society, whatever normal means. Um, And you described what I thought was very useful, the idea of almost a civic coin and two sides to that coin on the one side, public health, and on the other, urban planning and how those two have really got to work very effectively in the future post-COVID and in response to pandemics and uh, more generally. So let's start with that, Ashraf. I'm going to ask you to basically summarize what led you to write that article in the Herald. And then, Francois, let's talk a bit about those implications and see how the two topics start to, to, to blend into each other. What is it that we should be thinking about? And let's see how the conversation develops from there. So, Ashraf, over to you, sir. Thank you, Pete. You know, for a while now, I've been reflecting on the profession, the urban planning profession, the work that we do, the value of policy and the impact of policy on local government. And I've been thinking about this for a long time, but more particularly since I've been involved with local government, more hands on over the past few years. And I have come to the realization that we are all so busy doing all kinds of stuff, but the impact of our work has actually been minimum. And often the implications have been that we have created all kinds of dependencies and created all kinds of expectations amongst people that we haven't been able to deliver around. The reflections have been trying to understand why does the situation exist? And for me, there are several reasons for them. One, The economic structure has simply been the same all over the world. And so in very many uh, situations, South Africa is the same as every other country in terms of inequalities, the type of inequalities, structural unemployment, and the fact that the economy just cannot accept more people. Of course, in South Africa, it takes racial forms and it has taken all kinds of forms and uh, because of our history. At the same time, we've seen that the policy interventions that are being prepared, have been proposed over the past 20 years are not very different to policy proposals that come out of other countries and where they've also not been very successful. And so when I wrote the article about the opportunity to press the reset button, it's really about saying, well, what do we mean by development? What do we mean about, uh, when we talk about the human being and the growth of the human being? Because we glibly talk about these kinds of stuff and we glibly talk about urban growth and urban this and human development this and social development that. But we have not seen these things translated into a better society, a more successful society, how we define the success. And so we've just continued to be on this treadmill of mediocrity, in my view, and we've not made any change to this country. So what prevents us from that is, in my view, that the preponderance of a particular approach to policymaking to, secondly, the power of property owners over politicians, and thirdly, the control of all other kinds of elites. And poor, the poor are also, organized poor is also a form of elite. And the control that elites have on the immediacy of public expenditure. And I think this opportunity to reset gets us an opportunity to reset, to, 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 re, to relook at that. What response did you get to your article, Ashraf, What in terms of responses and, and comments that you might have seen, received through social media? Yeah, I think the, the responses have been quite interesting, actually. I was, I was hoping people would begin to, to actually question that. I mean, if you look at the, the, the points in the article, we are talking about individualism and people have forgotten where we come from in terms of what made us survive as human beings. Global economic growth has been about individualism and and, and not shared growth. I think that what people are questioning and when they they comment on the article is, yeah, we understand it's We understand what you're saying, but where do we go from here? And I think it's that where do we go from here that needs a lot more exploration, which I think that, and I'm happy to talk about it a bit later on how the MBDA is approaching, where do we go to from here? Francois, from your side, some immediate thoughts and immediate framing of the conversation around our challenge of an extended period of lockdown. I think 
first, you know, I think I should have made some very important points here. And, and I think if we just look at how we will get out of this and how we will get out of the, what is often called now the great lockdown rather than the uh, great uh, depression. And I think that it will be very much influenced by the strength of our institutions. And with that, I mean our public sector institutions, how well they are funded, the capacity to deal with this. And I think so. Ashraf's point, uh, if I pick it up correctly, is one of saying that we've been running a sort of economics that uh, you can call it neoliberal economics or anything uh, along those lines or the Washington consensus type of economics, which, which really has put little faith or funding in those institutions. And I think now we will rely on them and we may well regret that we have underfunded them. And that, you know, we've often been talking of the development state, you know, that would take us to the development process. And I think by not getting there, this will bring it potentially to the fore. So my personal view is that, but I suppose that's where I come from, from Keynesian economics, that I believe that the, the type of economics that we will need will, will be in the short run the state as the consumer of last resort at, at the moment. Uh, on the discussion of the lengthening that we've seen, I think the most important issue at the moment is that there is a level of uncertainty. I think we're starting to see, uh, Macron spoke a few days ago, uh, day before yesterday, and was fairly specific as to how France was going to get out of that. The, the date has been set for the reopening. A date has been given for the reopening of the schools to some degree. So at a certain point, of course, lives come first. But at a certain point, what we will need is some policy, well, whether it's policy, certainly some indication or some certainty regarding the way uh, we are going to reopen uh, this. Uh, yes, the, the stats are uncertain at the moment. We all know that we will see these numbers coming through. So, so yes, it will be a question of lives on the one hand and, of course, livelihoods on the other. And I think a very specific context in that respect is, is going to be very important. How long can we carry on with this? So I suppose what has been said and I quite like the analogy that has been used internationally, that we will go through what a, a robot or a streetlight approach, red light, orange light, green light, uh, red light, stop. Uh, we will then move into a phase probably of, of the orange light where some stores will open up, some institutions may open up, schools may go open up. And then finally, the green phase, you would leave to sports events, areas where there are bigger groups of people getting to together. So I think that that's the approach. But I think what we need at the moment or fairly quickly is some sense of certainty uh, regarding the way forward. Yes, we, we, we now have in South Africa till the end of April, but no one's quite sure. Francis raised two big points. The one point about the, the primacy of economics hitherto in terms of our policy. And the impact that has had is, of course, the real power that business and property owners have had over government and politicians and the impact that has had on urban spatial growth and why urban land has become unaffordable and why apartheid has, uh, spatial, uh, the apartheid space has been entrenched. I think that's a discussion which we do need to have, and I'd like to have the discussion on what needs to change and why this is an opportunity. The issue about opening and gradual opening, for me, that is neither here nor there. What this virus has done for us, it has shown us to be vulnerable in many ways. The first way is this whole issue of globalization and the, dis and the, and the destruction of tariffs, particularly in South Africa, and how that has deindustrialized this country to the point where Almost 90% or more than 90% is what the minister or professor, Professor Abdul Karim said on TV the other day. Um, almost 90% of protective equipment comes from China. 
So we, a thing as simple as that can, can be manufactured in this country, can be manufactured in the township street corner, comes from China. And I think the opportunity here, and this is if, if, if Francois is arguing around Keynesianism, is for me the opportunity to reintroduce protectionism for basic industries and the reindustrialization of the country and the impact that will have on urban spaces. So I think that's a great opportunity because the reset button for me is going to have to be a fight between those who wish to retain the status quo because there, is trillions invested, there are trillions invested in the status quo. So the banks are going to want to continue the way they are. Corporates are going to want to continue the way they are. The cell phone companies and so on and so forth. And all the people and all the organizations and forces that control our lives in a particular way who are themselves under threat right now won't want to change, and I think that's where the thing that needs to, that we, a lot of focus is going to have to happen. How do we press the reset button on the economy so that it has the other social, spatial, and economic and environmental changes that are required to undo the kinds of challenges we have? Now, that's easier said than done because the status quo always fights back. So we have to fight back the status quo on policy. We have to start back, fight back the status quo on, fi on, on the finance economy, on the manufacturing economy. But most importantly, we have to fight back the status quo in the state, where the state in itself has, a, has become an ineffective state. Because as much as, it, as there has been an economic focus, there's been no shortage of money into health, education, welfare, and so on and so forth. But it is precisely there where the impact of this virus has been felt greatest because the state has not been spending the money in the way it should be spending by raising people's quality of life and lifestyle standards. So that is another status quo that we're going to have to challenge, and that is how the state itself operates at this time going forward. If you want to prevent, because there will be more epidemics, and if Moore's law is anything to go by, this might come, become more frequent. So we will have to find ways in which state policy and state functioning changes fundamentally to change the way in which people live, not only in terms of density, and I think the issue of density is a red herring, is a discussion that's not really important to this matter, because people since before Mohenjo-Daro and the Indus Valley civilizations and things like that. So the issue of density isn't that important. It's the issue of how the state sees itself as an actor in the development of people. Having been hands-off hitherto, it now is the opportunity to become hands-on. Francois, do you want to respond at all to any of the points that Ashraf has made? I think that what will come out of this is that invariably certain companies, sectors, will probably need to be assisted in one way or the other. I think that government funding that goes to any of these sectors or company should possibly come with strings attached to it. Strings that push corporates in a particular direction, um, reflecting policy, and that, yes, that companies start maybe resp responding to inclusion rehousing if the real estate sector needs assistance. That the tourist sector is maybe not pushed is the wrong word, but it's certainly influenced to move into specific parts of town and specific areas. So I think that there is an opportunity to for the public sector and local government even to leverage somewhat. Unlike what happened in 2008 with the global financial crisis, where there were bailouts, did the banks really alter the way they started thinking afterwards? Many would argue maybe not such a to such a great extent. So I suppose that's the, the only thing that I would add. If we were to consider government in, whether it's two months time, three months time, that moment of reset, if it could do one thing different or could amplify one of the things it's doing and doing well now, what do you think that would be? Any thoughts from your side, Ashraf? Well, firstly, I would abolish every local economic development department in every municipality because they are just useless and they fulfill no role because they have no contribution to make towards any any discussion at economics for the reasons that we discussed earlier on the power of business people. And I think that what local government needs to do is to use this as an opportunity to introduce new forms of service delivery. The whole issue of this technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, another term which I find difficult to, to engage with. But if you just look at distributed generation in electricity, 
If you look at distributed uh, 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 sewage management, if you look at distributed water containment and water purification, and the opportunities that creates for public officials to work in the areas in which they live and be accountable to the communities in which they live, and also how that will reduce their transport costs. It's something that I think we need to begin to explore. How can we change and use the available technologies to do so? How can we change the way in which municipalities function and in doing so improve the quality and levels of services which communities receive? That's the one thing I think can be done quite quickly. And it's something that I'd like to explore at the Mandela Bay Development Agency when, uh, when we look at our, 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 new, our new five-year plan, and which, which, I can dis- which we can discuss later on. So I think that's the one area. The other area which I think uh, can be looked at, particularly since municipalities are probably not going to get the kind of money that they've been used to getting. I think that they can streamline the organizations and really get rid of superfluous departments in those organizations that add very little value but actually add to the debt burden of those municipalities because money gets borrowed to pay salaries and that kind of stuff. And I think things like economic departments, tourism departments, whatever other else, those, those departments play, really have not played any value in most cities also in South Africa in, in terms of their growth and development. And I think that this gives municipalities an opportunity to rethink what their roles are within communities and therefore how they need to structure themselves. Is there, is there not, a, not, not a counter-argument to that, Ashraf, that the idea that a local economic development department might actually be really important in the coming coming year, coming couple of years, as municipalities recover from the, the downturn that we're going to see, inevitable downturn, and that there has to be some degree of very strong, let's call it leadership and thinking between in local industry and the chambers of commerce, etc., and the municipality with people who are well well placed to be able to have those conversations, who are uh, skilled in thinking and policy development, if it's incentives and so forth. When I hear you saying abolish all of them, surely it can't be true that all are all are um, are hopeless. Um, I'm assuming that in terms of your engagement with, for example, Nelson Mandela uh, Bay Municipality and Metro, that there's a strong relationship, for example, between yourself as the development agency on behalf of Nelson Mandela and the municipality. If you had to do an analysis of the value that these organize, that these departments have had, and, and, and I must say that I've been around in this block for a long time, but Salga in the municipal space, in the public policy space, and, and so forth. So I know these things, and, and I know this because I've engaged with people at that level. So I would really... I would, I would actually challenge the people who are in these departments to justify why they need to exist given that they have not been able to make any significant impact. And, I'm, and I must say, I'm, I'm talking about across, across the country. There might be, so there might be some, some, some alternatives. I mean, there might be some exceptions here and there, but across the country, local economic development departments in municipalities have not been successful. In fact, they've been a drain on the resources of municipalities, and they haven't been able to contribute. And the reason, there are other reasons for that. One of the other, well, some of the reasons is basic municipal efficiency in terms of zoning, processing zoning applications, processing uh, building plan approval applications, fixing potholes, uh, maintaining sewage and all that other kind of, those are the basics and essentials of economic development. Having an economic development department is of no consequence if basic governance doesn't take place. On the issue of of, of economic growth and properties, I actually think that we can re-look at our zoning schemes and make our zoning schemes a lot more effective given the fact that zoning schemes, as they as we have them right now, have actually become uh, irrelevant in the context of the types of uh, property zonings that the new economic environment and milieu requires. It does require the kind of flexibility in zoning and so forth. Kathy, you wanted to come in here. I think Ashraf has a point. I mean, I've never fully understood what local economic development departments do uh, or seen what they do other than sort of issue informal trading permits. And I think they really struggle with what to do. And I think in a crisis like this, we see the big economy engages very little with the local economic development department. I mean, the reality is, as Ashraf has pointed out, that the politics um, is driven by big business, uh, big property interests, and decisions are made that revolve around those interests. And that's the economy in one form or another. And that's not 
engaging with LEDs. So the LED stuff is really sort of fiddling around the edges and really not so impactful. And I would agree that, you know, there are many things that uh, require reset at municipal level. And, you know, I think in this space, municipalities, I think what we have to remember, and perhaps one thing that I would change is around competency. I hope that this crisis really pushes the South African government to prioritize competency over anything else in its recruitment, in its recruitment of politicians, in its recruitment of executive leaders, and its recruitment of officials. We've seen the decimation of the capacity in municipalities, which makes them incredibly vulnerable in terms of how they respond in situations like this. And, you know, I think part part of the reason for the lockdown such an early and proactive response to the lockdown and its extension is a recognition of how, as Francois pointed out, how weak our institutions are and that we we wouldn't be able to cope if we allowed this virus to get out of control, which it may still do, of course. What is that reset around competency and what the values are that drive municipalities and, and decision making and drive their resilience and how they how they prioritize interests from that perspective where, you know, this crisis is, is and its impact on the economy is is not to be undermined, uh, understated rather. And I would be interested in Francois's view here is that, but how many businesses have set aside and perhaps the, the failure of the economy and the, and the, and the, you know, the kind of impact of the Zoom administration on the economy has meant, has really eroded the savings of businesses and their ability to weather a three months liquidity crisis. But really, how much do we, uh, do we need really need to reflect on what is important? What is important in the economy, and what is important to support going forward? And you know, and then on what condition, as Francois pointed out? Yeah, I think Kathy's point on institutional capacity is so important uh, in, in dealing with this crisis and the money that we made available and started disbursing. Our biggest concern was not merely the impact that this money must make and must as money must have, is how do we prevent corruption? <laughs> and how do we prevent this money from being abused? What's going to happen over the next few weeks is more councillors are going to start coming to the MBDA as the demand and the need and the impact on, on, on starvation becomes, becomes more apparent. Councillors are going to increasingly come to us and our concern is continuously not merely about giving money and giving support and giving services, but how do we ensure that that doesn't get stolen? Because no matter what, whatever situation, there is always somebody who's going to want to steal. People stole at them, both the Winnie Mandela and the Nelson Mandela funerals. People are going to steal in here as well. So the issue of capacity is about public service and public spiritedness that must be inculcated in I don't want to use the word new public service, but in the context of this discussion, a new public service that would emerge out of this crisis is one that really should be based on the capacity to serve and the willingness to serve. Francois, you wanted to come back in and specifically on the question of the local economic development, the development, uh, let's call it partnerships or departments that are in many of our municipalities. You have a slightly different take on it. Let me also take the opportunity here just, just to respond also to, to Cathy. Let me start with that. I think that it's important from an economics perspective to differentiate often what is often the, the differentiated between risk and uncertainty. Now, businesses' role is to deal with, with the risk. Just leave that to the private sector. They'll take that decisions if things go bad, well, they go bad. But I think there's something else, and that is uncertainty. Now, that uncertainty can either be a drought it can be can come from a health perspective and from other perspective. And I think when high levels of uncertainty come in, things that no one could have foreseen, whether it's business or, or others, I think that's where we start relying on the public sector and its institutions. And then to come back to the point, the strength of those institutions will be critical at that particular point in time. Now, as far as local economic development is concerned, look, I'm the first one to admit that our institutions, not everywhere, but it's certainly quite a number of our municipalities, have not been strong enough to lead local economic development. But I think we do need to realize, and really from a property perspective, that the tier of government that 
the property sector, and most of us deal with every day, is local, uh, is local government. So as much as we can argue that's been an, uh, unsuccessful, the argument we, or maybe what we should be discussing is how do we make it successful? And I think the point that we've made in this discussion as well, we've been hearing from big business, and to be honest, from big government as well. I've been, I've been actually amazed how quiet local government has been in this crisis. I'm sure there's a lot happening, but every night the discussion revolves around the national ministries and how they're dealing at a local level. Now, either that reflects that there is no capacity in many of our municipalities, I suppose some of our bigger municipalities, Chwane and others, have got their problems, and that, that we found ourselves in a position where the only tier of government that is actually able to respond at the moment is national government to a, a large degree. And, and I suppose what I've maybe the other thing that we have possibly lost over the years, and so, certainly uh, probably after 94, is the strength of the civic movement. I still believe that if we had kept those structures going, for many reasons, those structures left us and people moved on to other positions. I think it would have given us the capacity at, uh, at a local level that we maybe, and politics at a local level that we don't have at the moment. It's interesting, colleagues, to consider the path that South Africa has emerged from post-1994. If I think of the trajectory from a, a country, a rebirth, emerging from apartheid and trying to find a new uh, a new spatial form, if we talk in built environment terms, but not only that, we're seeing the whole question of the public health system and the insurance and the health system that we want to build is a massive political issue. We've come through an, an initial HIV and AIDS crisis and a response that was uh, wholly failing uh, major, major parts of our communities uh, across the country. We've uh, seen state capture. We've seen an energy crisis. We've seen a water crisis here in the Western Cape and now COVID. It's certainly, I think, fair to say we, we never go through a dull day or decade. Each time of this, and I'm interested when you talk about this reset and this opportunity to almost reset a moral compass. You've alluded to it's the looting, it's the it's this it's this almost disease in itself that we can't seem to shake. My question would be: if you take all of those things that have led up to this COVID moment and what seems to be a united force trying to pull through with, I would argue, very strong leadership from the national space that we haven't seen for many, many years. What confidence can we take that anything will change? Can we assume that this is going to be the moment where actually we get this right? The point we made, you made last time we talked, Francois, was around the issue of South African airways. And we've seen in the last couple of days, you know, letters emerging which are suggesting, no, that the, the government's not going to bail them out. Now, that's really, really tough news for those people whose uh, livelihood are going to be impacted by SAA potentially not, not coming out of this. If state capture was the disease that took down South African Airways, is it the COVID crisis and that basically is the nails in the coffin? But let's start, Ashraf, what is your thoughts on that? We are in for a period of real tough time. I think Francois made it, made it very clear earlier on in this conversation, but I think also in his, your previous podcast where he says that certain businesses are simply not going to be around. Now, whether they were going to go downhill in any case, then, or whether it's it's precipitated by this, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not an economist, I'm not a futurist, and I'm not a thought leader either. <laughs> uh, but I do anticipate that there are businesses, and particularly small businesses and medium-sized businesses, that are so vulnerable to changes that have happened in their in their industries that they have not been able to adapt to, that they are simply going to have to do something else. The impact, of course, is going to be that more, there will be higher rates of unemployment. And I suspect that the argument for a basic income grant is going to be made. I think what is also being made is an argument for a lot more state intervention in the economy. And as a result of that, the anticipation among some economists are 
that we will actually have quite a significant increase in our economic activity in a shorter space of time compared to some other countries. The impact that's going to have on municipalities is enormous because in the short term, municipalities are going to have to increase their their, their indigent lists, which means more people won't be paying rates, more people won't be paying for electricity and water. It also means more support in in terms of cash that will have to be disbursed from municipalities into communities. What that means is that less money will be spent on infrastructure if the model is the same. And this is where my argument about resetting this thing comes in. There are alternative methods of delivering services. There are alternative concepts of how to look at community development. There are alternative ways to look at and drive small business and grow small business. And I think that's where the opportunity lies that we need to begin to think and explore. And if those are the businesses that can, 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 can access government subsidies, then for me, that is a way in which we will make a significant difference in local spaces. Offering subsidies like rates rebates and electricity rebates to attract a business to come and invest is really, I mean, I know, I know in the Western Cape they love that. I think it's silly. A business that needs rate support and electricity support is a business that wasn't viable to begin with. And just like in the apartheid era, when those, when those, when those support mechanisms went away, those businesses also went away. So I think we must be very careful on the type of business support initiatives we're going to put in place. We should really focus them on small businesses, emerging businesses, but most importantly, on restarting local manufacturing industries in South Africa. Francois, I think you've got some ideas there you'd want to share around some of the medium-term job losses and so forth that we might be looking at and the whole question of prioritization of expenditure. Any thoughts from your side? I suppose there are a few things to first to, to bear in mind, and it's a point that I've made in one of the earlier podcasts as well. We've been on a cyclical downturn in this country since December 2013. So we're well six years into a cyclical downturn of the economy. So we entered this with a lot of companies being very, very weak. Uh, we're, we're not entering in a scenario which China had, where, we, we, where they will go from 7% GDP growth to one. We are going to go from negative to more negative. And so I think I should have made the point, and I think Catherine uh, as well, and that is that we will all be experiencing this very differently. Just take the retailing example. It's very different if you are, for example, a restaurant. A restaurant sells time. If you haven't sold that evening in your restaurant, you're not going to sell it at some other point. A retailer selling clothing may well sell their clothing later in the year at a lower price, maybe at a discount price. But there's there's still economic opportunity. So the, the type of business that you are involved with, a hotel room night that is lost, is lost forever. And so I think also what we will see is that certain sectors will be hit harder than others. And I suppose the Western Cape through the tourist sector will will feel it in particular. And then, of course, what we're ending up here with is monetary policy is not going to solve this game. I still don't believe that 100 basis points, 200 basis points is going to make a difference. A bit like during the big depression in, in, in the 1930s. And that's where Keynesian economics came out saying, well, if there's no confidence, all you're left with is government expenditure. Now, the only problem here is that there is very little scope for government expenditure. The fiscus is already running very tight. Uh, We've seen in the past few months the the, the re-rating. Borrowing is becoming more expensive. So, So really the arsenal that government has at any tier of government, whether it's monetary or fiscal policy at the moment, is very limited. So what are you left with? Well, I suppose the only thing that you're left with is to create certainty. It comes back to a point that I made at the very start of the podcast, that all tiers of government have a role to play in creating some level of certainty in the South African whether it's in a business environment, but it's also generally, and I want to take this beyond the, the business environment. And I think that that's where we will, and that's where the strengths of our institutions are going to play a role. So that will become important. Invariably, this is going to be 
if I could put it, the excuse that government can put on the table to get out of SAA. I think uh, the, the public sector or certainly government will, or national treasury will be able to get out of this in this environment a lot lighter than they would a year ago. I think that they would get a consensus with the trade unions and others um, in a very different in- environment. And of course, then there's going to be a whole discussion about the World Bank, the IMF loans that may have to come to the party. So I think that, like I said, the arsenal for economic policy at all tiers of government is very limited at the moment. Local government has to be careful as well that if property prices come down, although that will be in the longer term, and hopefully we'll sort that out, that the rates and taxes could very well be affected by that as well. So, so really what I'm saying is that good governments, the strength of our institutions are going to be more critical at the moment than necessarily your ability to buy yourself out of the system. Francois, you, you mentioned the, the point there around the property rates, and um, I almost wanted to extend that to the valuations. And I mean, obviously, sure. the, part of the whole revenue stream for municipalities derived from their ability to raise revenue from property property rates and the, what, what's known as the general, general valuation role, uh, GVR. Uh, that's revisited every few years. Now, is it conceivable that across the country we might start to see major downturn in the general valuation role, the value of that across the board? Or do you think that, the, yeah, that, that that's something that, that's fanciful? Look, uh, it's a very interesting point that is, of course, being raised in boardrooms across the countries and, of course, in households as well. What is my property going to be worth uh, at the at the end of this? I suppose the starting point on commercial valuation would be the long bond rate. And when you're sitting at 12% and you start adding the risk of property, yes. But I think what's going to happen, you can't value in this environment, first of all. It's just there are too many uncertainty. Very few valuers will, will, will want to go down a valuation exercise. So I think the valuation of properties is going to be uh, uh, moved along to a later stage when, when it will need to be done. But look. Just take as an example, and I'm talking about the higher end of the market here, but uh, a lot of individuals who were counting on the Airbnb game are finding themselves at the moment with fairly uh, empty Airbnb flats. Now, whether those individuals will, will be able to keep up their repayments on flats that are not occupied is going to be an interesting point. So whether those properties will start entering the market will be important. At the very lower end of the market, and let's always remember that 75% of all properties on the deeds registry are valued below, uh, what is it, 600,000, 700,000 rands. So most of South African property lies below that. The big question we have to ask ourselves, will the 100, 200 basis points decrease in interest rates affect them? It will put money in people's pockets. But it is also the sector of the market that has seen the fastest growth. I mean, at, at that lower end, 400,000 below, you've seen property prices rise by 11, 12 percent. So it's a property market where property prices have been rising. So, look, it'll be a balancing out. All I'm arguing at the moment is don't think that the 100 basis point decrease in interest rates or more is going to prop up the property market. I think the balance sheet of households is too vulnerable at the moment. Kathy, from your side, do you want to come in here? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to test Francois on um, or ask him some questions linked to that. I mean, uh, you know, while it will be very painful for the current property owners who can't sustain, especially where they bought investment properties, would it be such a bad thing for properties to devalue from the perspective of becoming more affordable to those in need of housing? Is there a case to be made that perhaps that in certainly in some metros that might not be such a bad thing in terms of building a more affordable range of product available in the market? And it, you know, and it, obviously sitting here in Seapoint is a nice thing to say, but it may not apply elsewhere. So that's why I'm interested in Francois's response. And the other thing is we've been talking about municipalities and their vulnerability, and many of them are sitting on the edge of fiscal sustainability. And while, you know, Ashraf has pointed to a range of things which compromise their sustainability, 
I would argue that one of the things that compromises their sustainability is the nature of the urban form. You know, if we if we start to see over the long term an improvement in the property economy and an uptick and a re-entering of speculative behavior, and then there's going to be a big drive amongst uh, leadership to say, let's allow that development, let's allow any development because it'll bring in rates, which is a, a very um, false understanding of how things work and how the numbers add up. But be that as it may, that is the general approach um, that we see. But that just exacerbates the divisions, it exacerbates the costs, it exacerbates the vulnerability of municipalities. I think this conversation around the property economy and what it looks like going forward and how it impacts on municipal sustainability and resilience, but at the same time, how it responds to the to the needs of, of households in South Africa could be quite an interesting topic on its own. But I'd be interested in Francois um, and Ashraf's views on that. I think Cathy's point is really the point. If you had to look at the impact of the situation or the period or the time or the virus that we're in and going forward, and the factors that we're going to have to take into account at the basic level of what expectations we have of municipalities. Besides the fiscal impact that lower property values are going to have, the opportunity is now created for the equitable share formula. Now, the equitable share formula is basically a formula derived out of an entitlement which constitutionally municipalities have a right to the national, a share of the national revenue. An aspect of the equitable share formula, and I'm sure Francis can explain this much better than I can, there's a component that allows, that, that takes into consideration poverty and levels of poverty. And I think that before the virus, that formula has been under review because there have been concerns that municipalities are not funded accordingly uh, based on the expectations that they have, that the constitution and the laws have of municipalities. And so this period allows us to accelerate the review of the equitable share and therefore give municipalities a greater share of national revenue because they will be dealing with the national impact at the local space of this virus. And I think that there, there is something that's going to have to be looked at in terms of municipal revenue, particularly on two drivers at the municipal level in terms of that one, reduction in revenue, as explained by Francois and some of the other points that were raised. And secondly, the increased outlay to deal with indigence and poverty implications and so and so forth. So I think that is something that uh, that is definitely going to affect municipalities. Peter, I think also just to add to Ashraf's point before Francois comes in, is that what we're seeing in this period of a uh, state of disaster is that the expectations of the municipalities will um, exceed their mandates. And of course, you know, the municipalities are already bearing the burden of of unfunded mandates, but we're going to see different kinds of mandates coming in, which will place uh, obligations on municipalities to really apply their minds to without necessarily the funding. And I think that's going to important to reflect on in what Ashraf is talking about as well, around what is the funding model for municipalities going forward. For example, I mean, everyone has talked about food security. It's another one of those fashionable topics to talk about. But municipalities haven't really engaged too much in in what that means and what their role is in that. Now we're talking about food packages, but what are we um, what are we talking about in relation to food systems and maintaining supplies of food into into urban agglomerations, etc. And increasingly, municipalities are going to have to play a more um, deliberate role there. And there are a range of other things that this disaster is sort of pushing onto municipalities without necessarily funding to be thinking about around social welfare in particular. So I think that is going to to link into to the conversation around the equitable share formula, not based not only on the basis of the numbers, but also the the additional roles that the municipality needs to play because it's right there on the ground. It's the closest to the people. It makes sense. Thanks. 100%. Francois, did you want to come in here? Yeah, look, let me just also just add something to what Cathy mentioned. I think she raises a very interesting point. And the point of what is it maybe a, a good thing uh, or not that we saw we see property prices drop. I suppose the point that I just like to make here is that the impact which all of this will have on the economy will be influenced by how long this takes. And I think from what we are picking up at the moment from government is that this could be protected. I think we've taken a view 
to bring down that curve down by ourselves sometime. And with discussions around the peaks now, if I correct, at August, we could be into September. So it's not what we want to do, but of course, what the pandemic is going to look like and and the choice that we've made from a health policy, public health policy perspective. And I think that that will find itself out in the way that the economy is going to come out of this socially. So yes, uh, we, we're not balancing lives uh, against the economy here. The, you know, as tough as the economy is, we'll get through it. So I suppose the issue I'm making is that the longer it takes, the longer, the bigger the possibility that we will see uh, high levels of unemployment and property prices coming down. As the balance sheet of households gets weaker and weaker, the longer it takes, if we end up in September, October, November, I think that the implications could be much more severe than some, something that is a month or two shorter. Where will the impact be? You know, as I mentioned earlier, the Airbnb, but of course, at that point, you're talking of the higher segments of the market. I think those segments of the market, we could see property prices come down. So as long as you are in the million plus two game, uh, I think that there will be benefits. But I think that if you are at the, the, like I said, where 75% of the property market lies, it would certainly be below a million rents, the demand there remains so strong that I don't necessarily foresee prices slowing down in that tier of the market. Of course, the big issue there is that we need to pump up the supply. Will the developers take that risk uh, with uncertainty of the economy in front of them? That's, of course, going to be an interesting point. So I think to to resolve the, the lower end of the market, you've got to have a climate where you pump up the supply. Of course, there's a the big discussion, the form that cities will take as, as a result. Are we you know, like I said, in Cape Town, will Stellenbosch become a suburb of Cape Town? Uh, and I don't think we're too far f- f- from that. But I think that where the property market will focus on the, the types of properties, for example, the focus will very much lie, again, from the commercial perspective rather than residential on the logistics sector. And that has its own uh, space requirements. Francois, I really appreciate your your thoughts there. It's certainly a very interesting part of the conversation and uh, we're going to have to continuously watch this space. The point that you make, we're coming off a six, seven year period of of, of economic downturn. It was always going to be tough at this stage going forward into the next year and the year after that. But right now, it seems that that we can basically talk almost about a seven to eight, nine year period. um, We can start to forecast um, that we're going to be in this rut. But the point that you make, and I think the value that I'm taking from this conversation is that there are parts of the market which are so in demand that uh, not all is lost. And that in itself is a really uh, positive reminder and reinforcing point of this conversation. Colleagues, as we start to wrap, um, we have been talking now for almost an hour and it's time to start to bring the conversation to a conclusion. I want to ask Ashraf from your side, in terms of the discussion that we've had, any last point that you'd like to make or point that you'd like to reinforce that's already been made? If you take Francois' point and locate it in in Antonio Gramsci's uh, philosophical position, then this crisis has accelerated the decline something that was in decline already. The opportunity, therefore, if you extend the if you extend the Gramscian position, that there is something that can be born. There's something that's waiting to be born, some new ideas that are emerging. And I think that the good thing about this crisis, it has really got everybody across the world, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the IMF, all the big institutions to say that the way we've accumulated wealth over the past 40 years has become unsustainable at the basic human level, and that we needed to review that. And there were, for the past three to four years, those discussions were happening. And I think that this crisis has now focused that discussion. I think that's a good thing. I think that if Keynesianism is the, is the, is the response, or contemporary Keynesianism, I suppose, is probably the, the, the term to use, then I think we're going to see a far more egalitarian approach to economic development. And the good thing about that it gets us as organizations such as the MBDA, uh, the Mandela Bay Development Agency, to say, well, what then are the developmental things we should be focusing on? And I think that we are at the moment, not I think, I know at the moment, 
what we are doing, we are actually engaging in a process where we're asking people who had completely alternative ideas and people who might be thought of as loonies and lefties and all kinds of crazies, we're asking them, well, what opportunities are created by this moment and what do you think organizations such as the MBDA should be doing? And we are going to use that to help reset the button and press the reset button and, and plan for the next five years. Of course, it's not all going to happen immediately, but we started the process where we're questioning the work that we've been doing and whether we shouldn't be doing something else as the Mandela Bay Development Agency. And then all those discussions will feed into how we how we go forward over the next five years. Thank you. No, thank you, uh, Ashraf, for your contributions this afternoon. Much appreciated. Francois, from your side? Let me round off by saying the following, that in the short run, we will all be relying on the strengths, and if I could put it the words, of technocrats. Not our politicians, but our ability to resolve a problem. Either we have the capacity in our institutions, funding and other capacities, human capacity, or we don't. And I think throughout the world, it will be the test of that. I think taking a broader economic perspective, I think that we will come out of this with a new appreciation of our institutions that we have tended to underfund over the past decades, the institution we have decimated to some degree, believing that the market would respond. By the way, I am the first one to be in favor of the, of, of the market. The market does good things. But when you have a crisis, a level of uncertainty, you must be in a position at all tiers of government to be able to, to respond. And I think it will happen both nationally, and I think that our multilateral institutions, our Britain Wood institutions, um, will, we will start to appreciate the importance of multilateralism globally. And I think that that will come out of this. I think that's, that's my view on it. Again, thanks for sharing with us, Francois, and appreciate your inputs again today and for the second time in the month for spending time with us and giving us your thoughts. Really appreciate it. Cathy, starting to wrap up from our side. Thanks, Pete. I mean, this has really been a fascinating conversation, and I think what it really strikes me about what Francois and Ashraf have said is that perhaps the silver lining is that we're going to be forced to make some very clear choices and that, you know, the role of the state is important. And we talked about in our in our previous podcast conversation around how you know perhaps the state has has uh, the leadership have t- taken quite a dismissive approach to technocrats and experts and perhaps the national government has been less important than municipalities to people on the ground but i think what we've seen in this crisis is all as as francois points out all all spheres are important they all have a critical role to play depending on the situation and the circumstance but at the, regardless of the circumstances they all have to be able and competent to respond and to res- respond well and so i i think we're going into a municipal election next year, and it'll be very interesting to see what the expectations are of civil society, of their leaders, learning from this, learning of what is the kind of leadership we want and what kind of choices are we making as a society around what is important. We talked about the LEDs departments, and I think, you know, to be fair to them and linking to what Francois has been saying is the LED departments have been hamstrung in the sense that there's there's a lot they can do, but actually a lot of the economic growth issues relate to macroeconomic policies and associated policies that are set at national level. And I guess out of this, we're going to see national government take some really hard decisions and make some really important choices linked to how it responds, because there isn't enough money for everything to carry on as usual. So, you know, this has been fascinating. And I think one can be cautiously optimistic about perhaps there will be some resolution of some longstanding issues that are in the best interests of of everyone's well-being. But we're going to have to keep a quite close eye on that. Human beings have a knack for just going back to the usual, as Ashraf has pointed out. Kathy, thanks as always for your insight and your support today. Really appreciate it. Colleagues, that basically brings us to the end of the conversation. Fascinating uh, hours worth of discussion. Lots of points. And uh, I'm sure in terms of the summary of this, when one looks back on it, there are so many different themes that we can pick up for future podcast entries. We didn't even 
and really get to the questions of, of, of public spaces, of urban management. They came up once in a while, but I think those are common themes that are, are already starting to permeate each of these conversations. In the meantime, to Ashraf Adam, to Francois Verley, to Cathy Stone, thank you so much to all three of you for joining us today. Be safe. Good luck for the rest of the week. The weekend is now, what, uh, two two days away? <laughs> we get a chance to, to, to have a bit of downtime again. All the very best, colleagues. Look after yourself and all the best to you and your families. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Francois. Thank you, Ashraf, for a really amazing conversation. Bye-bye, Pete. Thank you. Thank you to you all. Thank you all. It was lovely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please engage with us and let us know your thoughts on this episode. You can do so via the Anchor podcast platform. There's a voice message function available via the app. You can also follow us on Twitter via Talking Transfo and the number one. So Talking Transfo one. Our theme music is kindly made available by Tribal Need. Find out about the music, the street art shows here in Cape Town and Europe via tribalneed.com.